Good evening, folks, and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here once again with another hour of geeky facts, figures, fun and stuff. I am going to get the apology up front and out of the way right now. Still no conversation with Alice because I still haven't organised it. To be fair, things were kind of fraught in the run-up to Free Comic Book Day and uh, various other things that were happening. So hopefully, hopefully, we will get it done before the next time you have to listen to me blethering on for another hour. But while I'm here, I'm hoping to make it interesting so that you don't regret the lack of other voices. And we're going to start with the sports news. Yeah, you heard me. You can be geeky about sport, and I am very geeky about the brilliance of the Paralympics. Now, I've always loved the Olympic Games. My earliest memory of the Olympics is watching David Wilkie win gold in Montreal in 1976. I would have been five. So that's probably one of my absolute earliest memories. But I love the Paralympics more, and I could not be happier that over the last few games, the coverage has gone from being utterly non-existent to kind of scant, to now pretty much as all-encompassing on Channel 4 as the coverage the BBC gives to the Olympics, or as I like to think of it now, the warm-up event. I'm sure many of you have been watching the games as avidly as I have, and so I'm not going to talk about individual performances or anything like that. What I want to talk about is uh, the... Yeah, I'm always going to get a sneaky jingle in there. But I do want to talk about the science of the Paralympics because it's fascinating to me. I mean, let's start with wheelchairs. Now, I don't know whether you spent a lot of time around wheelchairs or not. As a kid, I did. Not because I needed to use one, but because I was at school with a lot of kids who did. A little bit of backstory, and actually this is probably going to explain why I'm such a fanboy for the paras too. Um, my school that I went to to do my A-levels was in Doncaster, which is the town where I grew up. It was a split-site school, and in between the two sites was the school that all of the, and I'm going to use the terminology that was used then, physically handicapped students in Doncaster went to. If they, you know, if they needed a place that was adapted for people with various disabilities, that's the school they went to. Now, that school was not set up particularly to do exams because history and the way people have been treated badly in the past. So it sort of stood to reason that when kids who were officially on roll at that school, I'm not naming either school, by the way, um, it made sense that kids who were officially on the roll at that school needed to do GCSEs, stroke A-levels, they would do their lessons for those subjects at the school I was at. And so over the two years I was there as a student, I got used to seeing kids scooting up and down in wheelchairs and using various other bits of equipment that helped to mitigate whatever their issues were. A decade after I left that school as a student, I went back as a teacher. It was, in fact, my first teaching post. And I noticed something different. First of all, the integration of students faced various physical challenges had been amped up and basically just completed so that the school was, by the time I taught there, completely accessible. And, you know, our disabled students were just students. They were the same as everybody else, as it should be. But I also noticed that there was a real change in the types of wheelchairs I was seeing around the corridors. As a kid, back in the late 80s, the wheelchairs I was seeing were fairly heavy things, fairly cumbersome. And although most of the kids who used them did push themselves along without any assistance, they all had handles on the back so that somebody could push them along in the way that you see wheelchairs being used in hospitals and whatnot. When I went back, I was seeing, first of all, the wheelchairs were much lighter and much more manoeuvrable. The second thing I was seeing was that the chairs no longer had handles on the back. And since this is Geeking with Destination Venus, I will point out 
that originally when the character of Barbara Gordon in Batman was paralysed from the waist down, she was depicted as using wheelchairs that were quite big and clunky and had handles on the back. But it was actually fan comment that got the artists to, to look at some actual catalogues for actual wheelchairs and start depicting Barbara using a wheelchair that was like the ones that kids I was seeing at my school in the early 2000s were using. It was, it was light, it was manoeuvrable, didn't have handles because people who use wheelchairs do not need to be pushed about. They are independent people who can propel themselves. Now, the reason these advancements happened was because of advancements in attitude, yes, it did take the kinds of people who are in positions to make decisions about wheelchair design to actually start to have some experience of either being wheelchair users or working with wheelchair users to find out what the people who use wheelchairs actually wanted. But also, material science has developed. So lightweight materials became more available, they became cheaper and more affordable so that they could be used in everyday wheelchair construction. But also, the growth in para-sport meant that at the highest level, at sort of Paralympic level, teams were starting to look at, well, hang on a minute, why do we have to make a wheelchair out of steel? What else could we use? And hang on a minute, I want to make a racing wheelchair. Does that really have to look like the kind of wheelchair that you might use every day? I mean, you wouldn't go and enter the sprint final at the Olympics in dress leather shoes. So why would your wheelchair be the same? And those attitudes started to come through and material science started to be looked at. And look at the wheelchairs they use at the Paras now. Compare the wheelchair that somebody playing wheelchair basketball might use to the wheelchair that somebody in wheelchair racing would use. They're very different machines. And I use the word machine advisedly. Um, look at the wheelchairs of the wheelchair rugby players who, you know, those wheelchairs take some serious beating and you can change the wheel on one of those things in like 30 seconds. All of that is the product of A, will, and B, science and engineering. And beyond that, there's more. It's not just material science. I mean, material science also comes in to the blades that um, amputees use to to run on. They don't look like legs anymore. People used to make prosthetic legs that looked like legs. And, you know, for everyday use, they still do. But if you're going to run on it, why not find out what's best for running, which is where we get the blades from that people like Johnny Peacock use. It's a huge advance. There's also a huge advance in ergonomics that makes prosthetics now significantly more comfortable than they were even 10 years ago. There's all of that materials science that goes into the paras. There's also an awful lot of biology that goes into the paras. Sports medicine is a very specialised field in any case, but when you're dealing with people of short stature or people who have various conditions that make them eligible to be a Paralympian and they're pushing their bodies to the limit, there's a lot to look at there about, well, does this affect the body differently than it would in the body of somebody without that condition? So there is a lot of science involved in the Paralympics. And I have to say, it's a two-way street. Yes, para-athletes have benefited from advances in material science and sports science and all of that kind of thing. But those science benefit from the para-athletes too. Developments in science and engineering tend to come because people are looking for solutions to issues that have presented themselves. If we only had able-bodied athletes, an awful lot of issues would not have been presented to science. Science wouldn't have needed to solve them, and there would have been no knock-on effects. So we should be kind of grateful to the immensely talented para-athletes that are out there in Tokyo right now, working to be the very best athletes that they can be. Also, genuine question, does anybody know where the nearest wheelchair rugby team to Harrogate is? Because I want to go and start watching some live matches. It's been a long time since I've watched live wheelchair rugby. But the success of the GB Paralympic team 
at these games has reminded me just how much I love it. Just even slightly more than regular rugby. Just slightly. It's faster. And I really like that in a game. So anyway, I'm not going to go into detail about Paralympic science because I'm not qualified to do so. I just wanted to share with you really the fact that I marvel at it and the advancements that have been made since I first started following Parasport as a kid back in the late 80s. And in my continued brand new spirit of optimism, we've got some other science news for you that is genuinely, genuinely quite hopeful. Now, I have been laying on the doom and gloom about climate change for a few weeks now because it's grim. It really is. But one of the things that is a big concern with climate change is the destruction of coral reefs, in particular the Great Barrier Reef. Now, one of the things that happens as the seas warm up is they become more acidic because they dissolve more things that make the sea acidic. I'm a little bit fuzzy on the science there, but it's a thing that I have been told by marine biologists that happens, and I accept that this is so. Now, who cares? Well, one of the consequences is that a warmer sea, a more acidic sea, is very bad for coral. And what you get is what's called bleaching events. Coral normally is massively colourful. If you've seen any David Attenborough documentary that looked at a coral reef, you will have seen the colours. A bleaching event is exactly what it sounds like. The coral dies, it becomes white, and it's then easily smashed up. And it also is less supportive of other marine life. Now, the other way that climate change is bad for coral reefs is it causes more extreme weather events. Hurricanes and cyclones become more powerful and therefore cause more destruction. One of the things that can be destroyed in cyclones is coral reefs. The waves can literally just smash them up. Now, when that happens, not only is that bad for other marine wildlife, it's clearly bad for the coral reef, uh, but not only is that bad for other marine wildlife, it's a problem if you live on the islands that are protected by coral reefs. One of the things that coral reefs do is create a kind of sea wall, a, a kind of wave break that protects what are often very low-lying islands, particularly in the Pacific, from rough seas. Take away the coral, the island becomes vulnerable. If you happen to be one of the people who lives on one of those islands, you therefore also become vulnerable, and that is bad for you. Hang on a minute, Reg. You said that this was going to be kind of hopeful and optimistic. Well, it is. Actually, it is. Because scientists have been looking at a particular individual coral that makes up part of the Great Barrier Reef. It's huge. It is, in fact, 10.4 metres in diameter, which has earned it the nickname, and I am utterly going to butcher this, and I apologise to the Manbara people, Muga Dambi, which in the language of the indigenous people uh, of the island uh, where this coral is found, uh, it's called Gulbudi Island in northeast Australia, and I'm probably getting that name wrong as well. But in that, in the Manbara language, that means big coral, because like so many other peoples around the world, they are fantastically literal about place names. Uh, and don't think that the Manbara people are unique in this. If you've ever been to Scotland and paid attention to what the mountains are called, you will find that a lot of them are called Benmore. Where I like to go uh, in northeast Scotland, there are two Benmores less than 10 miles apart. Uh, and they're in different districts. So they are known as Benmore Ascent for the one that's in Ascent and Benmore Koyak for the one that's in Koyak. Benmore is from the Gaelic language, which is one of the indigenous languages of northern Scotland. And it simply means big hill. So, you know, if you ever drive past a thing, a, a hill in Scotland and you look on the map, it's called Benmore. It's the biggest hill around that neck of the woods. So it ain't just the Manbara people who are very literal about place names. So, yeah, um, Muga Danby means big coral. 
And they're right, it's 10.4 metres in diameter. I'm trying to think of something that's 10.4 metres wide. Um, we're talking about the kind of roundabout you used to get in kids' playgrounds uh, before we started worrying about kids getting head injuries quite so much. It's it's really big, really, really big. Did I mention how big it was? Now, that matters because coral, basically something that's made up of lots and lots of very small individual organisms called polyps. And because of this, what happens is generation after generation of coral polyps grows on top of the previous generation of coral polyps. And so the bigger a coral is, the older it is. Now, this thing, it's a standalone coral and it is 10.4 metres in diameter, as I said, and a little bit over five metres tall. Now, it's been calculated by scientists who know more about this stuff than I do. This single coral is between 420 and 440 years old. So it's been around since before Europeans colonised Australia. It's been around to survive as many as 80 cyclones and 99 coral bleaching events. Now, this is hugely optimistic because it demonstrates that some corals at least can survive the kind of issues that climate change is increasingly going to throw at coral reefs. Now, it's still not a, a, a solution. It doesn't mean we don't have to worry about this stuff, but it does mean that nature is perhaps a little bit tougher than we at first thought. It may be that this is a property unique to this particular kind of coral, and that other corals are still as fragile as we thought they were. But a good news story is a good news story, and I am pleased to bring it to you. Uh, there are links in the show notes to a very short article from Science News, uh, which is where I found this. It's just nice, as I say, to have some good news from the Great Barrier Reef, because mostly what we hear about the Great Barrier Reef is that it's being utterly trashed. So, Yale's bit of positivity, nothing of course to do with anything people have done, quite in spite of what people have done, to be honest, but nevertheless, good news. So, that is it for the science. Now, we're going to move on to a regular feature that I have to do a little bit differently this, this week, but I'll wait until after the jingle to tell you why. Okay, so this is the part of the show where I would normally talk about comics that are out this week that I really like. And I can't. And the reason I can't is because I record this show on a Tuesday, because if I leave it any later, I don't get a chance to get it edited and levelled and do all the stuff I need to do. Now, that's not normally a problem. Because although New Comic Book Day is officially in the UK Wednesday, and I can get in quite a lot of trouble with my suppliers if I sell comics early, there's no rule that says I can't read them early. And normally, comics arrive on a Tuesday so that I, as a retailer, can check off my order, get everything sorted, have everything ready for things going on sale the following day. And because I get them on a Tuesday, I can read them on a Tuesday, which means I can record my reviews of them on a Tuesday, maybe on a Wednesday morning if I'm pushing my luck, and everything's ready for the show to go out on a Thursday like it should. But this Monday was a bank holiday, which means everything is a day late. The bins are a day late being collected. The comics are going to be a day late arriving. They're not going to arrive until some point. Tomorrow morning, as I record this, on Wednesday, I have to open the shop at one o'clock on Wednesday afternoon. There is no way I'm going to have time to get the order checked off and um, some comics read in time for me to get to the shop, to open the shop at one o'clock. Given how often a late delivery is later than it should be, they're supposed to arrive by 12 o'clock. I bet it doesn't. Uh, I, I may be pushing it to get to the store for one o'clock, let alone getting things checked off and read. So I haven't read 
any of this week's comics this week is what I'm saying. Not yet. So what I'm going to do instead is not talk about comics. I'm going to talk about graphic novels because I don't do that often enough. And not everything is a 22 page pamphlet type comic. Some things are books, proper, big, chunky books. And we sell those too at Destination Venus, as do other bookshops and other comic shops. Okay, as ever, this is not a plug for my store. I'm not even naming it. So what do I recommend in that style of thing? Well, it's funny you should ask. I'm sure many of you are expecting me to talk about the classics, things like Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One and Batman The Killing Joke. And I'm not. Not because I don't like them, although I actually do not like The Killing Joke. I don't think it's a very good story. It's the worst thing Alan Moore ever wrote. And it's desperately, desperately misogynistic. I didn't like it when I first read it at the end of the 80s. I think it was in 89 when I first read it. And I don't like it now. So there, the artwork's lovely. Absolute shout out to Brian Bolland for the artwork in Killing Joke. It's beautiful. But the story itself? Nah, I'll pass. The only good thing that came out of The Killing Joke was Commissioner Gordon's daughter, Barbara, who had previously been Batgirl, becoming a wheelchair user and giving some representation to the disabled community and also becoming one of the most badass characters in DC Comics history, which is Oracle, who is basically somebody whose superpower is being a librarian. So good. Really loved it. but. The origin for that? No thanks. And don't even get me started on the animated adaptation, which throws in, uh, I don't know whether they call it a romantic relationship, but certainly a sexual relationship between Batman and Batgirl. Uh-uh. No. <laughs> no. Way too creepy. Thank you. No. Anyway, don't like the killing joke, is what I'm saying. And there is so much more available than just the classics. It's worth pointing out, Watchmen, Killing Joke, all of these books, they're more than 30 years old now. So I am going to focus on more recent graphic novels, things that were published as graphic novels and have never been single issue comics. And I'm going to start with Lucy Sullivan's Barking. Now, if you're listening to the Geeks at the Gates last year, you may remember Lucy Sullivan. Uh, she came on the podcast. She was interviewed by me. Uh, and she talked about Barking, which at the time was a fairly new book. What Barking is, is a powerful exploration of mental ill health from someone who has experienced it. It's about the self-destructiveness, about the, the terrible things that depression so often characterised as a black dog, hence the title, um, can cause to a person's psyche. It's a horrible thing, depression. Um, as somebody who's suffered from it myself in the past, I, I really related to Barking, not just as a story, but as a meditation almost. I won't go into details about the story because I don't like to spoiler it. I will talk about the artwork though. Uh, Lucy Sullivan, uses a, a, a like a, a I want to say she uses charcoal but I don't think she does uh she uses some kind of carbon thingamajig I, I know it smudges if you run your hand across an original uh, because there's a sketch in the front of one of the copies of the book that I have in the shop which she did with her normal carbon thingamajig uh, and I have to be very careful with it but it, it looks really smudgy and chaotic, which so beautifully reflects the subject matter. It's an absolute tour de force of a piece of work. I absolutely loved it. And I think anyone who's experienced mental ill health will recognise themselves or parts of themselves in this. And I, I certainly found it very relatable. Anyone who hasn't, I think you should read it because it gives you a very good idea of what that experience is like. You won't understand it fully. You can't possibly if you haven't experienced it. And I hope you never do. But it will perhaps give you 
a little bit of insight for when a friend of yours comes experiences this kind of mental ill health because one or more of your friends statistically absolutely will at some point so you know it's worth looking at from that point of view but also just as a piece of work as a piece of narrative as a story you are being told it is engrossing it is gripping you will care about the characters that you meet and you will be changed by it in the end and that i think is the purpose of good fiction it's an absolute banger of a book and i cannot recommend it highly enough it is available where all good comics can be found uh, or from lucy sullivan's website links in the show notes you can buy it from destination venus i actually think to be honest I'd quite like you to buy it directly from her. I think she makes more money if you do that. And I am all about supporting independent artists. So that's Barking. And I'm going to go with another equally serious piece of work for my second recommendation. Don't worry, it'll get lighter. But this is a book called Becoming Unbecoming by Una. Una is a relatively local person. Uh, She hails from Leeds. And Becoming Unbecoming is a sort of autobiographical work um, which is set against the backdrop of the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry. If you are in your late 40s, 50s or older, you will remember the Yorkshire Ripper. When I was a child, the hunt for the serial killer known in the media as the Yorkshire Ripper was pretty much the top story every night on the local news. And Una uses that story, that hunt, that pre- that presence of a killer as the backdrop to her own story. I'm going to be honest, this is a tough read. It's a very compelling one. I certainly, I was given my copy of this as a present. Uh, I got it for Christmas. I read it cover to cover on Christmas Day. Bit of a downer, got to be honest, but I could not put it down. It is completely, completely compelling. It is, as I say, an uncomfortable read. It's a difficult read. It deals with abuse. It deals with prejudice. It deals with bigotry. It deals with police incompetence. It deals with societal disinterest. It's tough, but it's beautifully told. Una is one hell of a storyteller. Uh, And again, she is her own artist, as Lucy Sullivan is, and she has a style which, again, beautifully, beautifully matches the tone of the narrative that she's telling. It's it's very grey. And it's very, I don't want to say, I don't want to say depressing because that's the wrong word, but that's the word that's coming to mind. It's not a book full of joy, this, and the art reflects that. But what it is, as I say, is a completely compelling piece of autobiographical writing that has a point to make. Okay, this isn't misery porn. This is something that says, look, This happened. This is what happened to me. This is what happened to the victims of this serial killer. And both of the things are wrong and they shouldn't have happened and they could have been prevented and they weren't because the people who could have prevented them were not interested in preventing them. They had particular opinions about the people these things were happening to and they could not see past that prejudice. And I like to think that the mistakes that were made in the hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper would not be made now. But I'm not sure they wouldn't be. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the case, you may actually still read that the victims of the Yorkshire Ripper were sex workers. Most were, in fact, not. And even if they had been, it doesn't make any difference or it shouldn't make any difference. They were still victims of murder. The attitude at the time was kind of, oh, well, these are women in a risky profession and, you know, they probably shouldn't be doing it anyway. They're putting themselves at risk. And, you know, and in fact, 
First of all, they were not in any case doing that. But even if they had been, they had the right to expect that their killers would be efficiently and properly hunted and brought to justice. And their killer was not. The man who was eventually caught, uh, uh, whose name I will not utter here, got away. He was interviewed by the police several times and let go because of, you know, stupid reasons, which had proper police work been done, would probably have been picked up. And not everybody could have been saved. Of course they couldn't. And actual responsibility for the murders lies with the murderer. But he could have been stopped. And he wasn't because of certain attitudes held by certain members of the investigative team. I think that that's something that comes through in Una's book. And, you know, it's something we should bear in mind because it has happened since. I could point you at the Stephen Lawrence murder, where it was assumed that because he was a young black man, the crime was probably gang related. Well, we know that that's not true now. And we also know that a lot of time was wasted. And a lot of effort was spent in the inquiry that would have been better spent elsewhere and which might have brought Lawrence's killers to justice if the investigation had gone that way sooner. So, you know, that this is not just a tale about history. It's a cautionary tale about how we need to look at the facts of a case as they are, not as we imagine them to be. So that's another very serious graphic novel I would like to present. And to finish off, perhaps, just perhaps, we should probably do something a little bit lighter. And in order to do that, I'm going to slightly break the rule I set at the beginning. Uh, this is an independent comic book, but it is one that has previously been published as single issues. It's from Image Comics, and it's called Shirtless Bear Fighter, and it is exactly what it says on the tin. The story of Shirtless Bear Fighter is very, very simple. There is a man who used to fight bears, and now he lives naked in a cabin in the woods, secluded from everyone, out of the fight, no longer wanting to fight bears. But the city is being attacked by bears, and only one person can help. So, agents from the FBI fly out to the secluded cabin in the woods to bring back the shirtless bear fighter to fight bears. This book is every bit as silly as that sounds. It has in it every single ex-military guy being brought back against his will from retirement for the greater good trope you could possibly imagine. Um, there is a point where a bloke in a black suit says to the, the shirtless bear fighter, God damn it, we need you. It's taking the mickey out of all of those 80s action movies that would feature people like um, Sylvester Stallone as as Rocky, Clint Eastwood in Firefox. Um, there's, there's elements of that. There's elements of various Jean-Claude Van Damme and Steven Seagal movies. And they are mercilessly parodied in this. There's a, a little bit of an eco theme going through and just the most ridiculously brilliant sense of humour. It's not subtle, this book, uh, but it is really funny. There are some astonishingly amusing one liners. Uh, there is the point where Shirtless arrives in the bear plane, which is a plane made of bears. It, it sounds like a one joke thing, and it really isn't. It's just one of those comics that demonstrates that it's fine sometimes to just be silly. And this is one of the silliest books you will ever read. Um, toilet paper, for reasons of the obvious joke, uh, also becomes a bit of a running gag. It, it's just, it's just the best. Um, and there are so many things. This is quite an old book now. Uh, and there are so many things about it. The more I think about it, that make, make me giggle. Um, when, shirt, uh, when Shirtless comes into society, he wears trousers. He is the shirtless bear fighter, so he does not wear a shirt. But when he's in the woods, he's naked. But because 
This is a story suitable for a family audience, a family audience with a warped sense of humour, I'll grant you, but a family audience, nevertheless. Um, a, a fairly large item of his anatomy is pixelated out. And for a while, I don't think you can still get them, but for a while you could buy a naked shirtless bear fighter action figure with 3D pixelation. It, oh, honestly, it's a puerile, stupid third form joke, and it still makes me laugh to the point that I've actually had to edit this portion of the show because I keep cracking up just thinking about it. It's that funny. I said I'd keep it light for that last one, didn't I? So there you go. Two very serious, kind of depressing books that demonstrate the power that comics can bring to telling stories. And then one stupid book about a naked dude that fights bears. And yeah. There, right there, is the diverse ability of comics to tell all kinds of stories for all kinds of reasons, for all kinds of effects. So those are our graphic novel picks of the week. And we'll maybe be doing that again sometime soon because we don't talk about the big books often enough. And there's some great stuff out there that people really ought to be aware of because honestly, if you knew it existed, you'd enjoy it a lot. Okay, so there's one fairly obvious segment that I'm sure you've all been waiting for, even if it's only for the jingle. So who am I to keep you waiting any longer? Folks, it is time to go into... You know... If you ever get bored of that jingle, please don't ever tell me because I'm never going to stop using it. A couple of items in our geeky space news this week. And the first one is properly geeky. Links in the show notes. Uh, but something that it really is important to remember is most of the people involved in space science and space research are there doing those jobs because they've always been massive geeks. And one of the biggest influencers particularly on people who work at NASA, has been Star Trek, the second longest running TV franchise of all time, beaten just by Doctor Who. Gene Roddenberry sadly left us uh, way, way back, I mean, far too young in 1991. But had he not, he would this week on August the 19th been 100 years old. And to mark that occasion, and to mark the fact that they are all massive nerds, the good people at NASA put together a little show uh, over Zoom, obviously, uh, to commemorate this centenary of somebody who inspired them and has also inspired the institution of NASA. One of the key themes that NASA have picked up as an organisation from Star Trek was its incredible diversity and its commitment to science and to non-violence. And, I mean, okay, commitment to non-violence is pushing it a bit, but the Federation isn't a military organisation. And uh, I know Captain Kirk liked to punch things a lot, but the actual point of the Federation was to seek out new life and new civilizations peacefully. It's not the Federation's fault that Kirk never actually listened anyway. Because of that, what NASA pulled out of this is an opportunity to talk about the diversity of people that they have in NASA in all roles. I, it's it's about 40 odd minutes long. Uh, it's moderated by um, Rod Roddenberry, who is Gene Roddenberry's son and the guy who uh, now manages the Roddenberry estate. Uh, it features George Takei, uh, Commander Sulu from Star Trek. Uh, and a range of NASA employees. Uh, there are far too many to talk about here. Um, it's worth a watch because it's well, nice to see a major organisation such as NASA tackle the issue of diversity head on in a way that's not patronising or box ticky, uh, but actually with a little bit of lightness of touch by linking it to something like Star Trek. It's also nice to see that the geeky pop culture that we all love as geeks actually does make a difference in the real world to real people. 
You know, I know people who saw Lieutenant Worf on Star Trek and and that was the realization they they had that was the point at which they realized that just because they were different than everybody else around them didn't mean they couldn't work with them didn't mean they were automatically an outcast and that that changed the way they looked at the world and made them feel more confident to take on opportunities and i've also known people who've looked at bits of star trekky tech and thought, hmm, how do we make that? And, you know, the people I knew failed in making it. But, yeah, it's, it's no secret that one of the inspirations for the tablet computer was the little tablet-y things that they carry around in Next Generation. So this is a hugely influential show. I mean, if you're old enough to have owned a flip phone, I refuse to believe you didn't want to at least once pretend it was a Star Trek communicator. And it's nice to know that the people who do the serious jobs in places like NASA have that influence too. So that's not really a space story as such, but it's just a nice bit of feel. You see, I'm doing more feel-good stuff. No more boring preachy parts. Actual feel-good stuff. Okay, on to a slightly more serious space story now, but one which is still very much a feel-good, good news story. Well, it's good news unless you were hoping to be included as a candidate to be one of the next batch of European Space Agency astronauts. It's bad news for you if you wanted to be involved in that because applications closed a while ago for candidates for the next batch of people to be taken in to the astronaut program for ESA. But it's good news because ESA has received over 23,000 applications to be enrolled into the next batch of ESA astronauts, including, and I don't know whether I love or hate this name, including a new programme for what they're calling para-astronauts, or para-astronauts, for people with physical disabilities. Now, applications closed on June the 18th. But there have been so many candidates applying that ESA has had to say, guys, you're going to need to be patient. We are not going to have even nearly got through reviewing all of these applications until November at the earliest. Now, that is really, really positive news. The last time ESA did a call out for new astronauts back in 2008, there were 8,413 applications from across Europe. And I do mean Europe. I do not mean the EU. Um, ESA is not an EU project. ESA is a joint project from many countries in the continent of Europe. The UK, for instance, is still a member of ESA. So, you know, there's that. And the reason it's such good news is, first of all, so many more people are clearly qualified to apply because I mean you can't just like stick your hand in the air and say I'd like to be an astronaut because I'd have been enrolled in the program decades ago if that was the case. You know the qualifications are quite strict, but it also means that there are so many more people who are considering this as a thing that is a thing that they could do, something that's actually possible for them, which means that people are starting to understand the possibilities in space, and I think that is brilliant because it used to be seen in Europe as you know going to space was a thing the Americans did and people didn't think about going into space and I remember when I first started uh, doing the rocket club at the school where I used to teach yeah kids being interested in space but it simply wasn't conceivable to them that a British person would have the opportunity to go into space. They earnestly, honestly believed it was something that you could only do with NASA, that NASA was the only game in town. Well, we that's never actually been true. And now we're beginning to see, the culture is beginning to understand that it is an incredibly difficult thing to get to do, that most people will not get to do it, but that it is at least possible. I think 
We owe this largely to the flight of Major Tim Peake, who was the first official UK astronaut. Um, Helen Sharman, of course, who was the first British person to go to space, uh, didn't quite have the same impact because she was flying on a Russian Soyuz um, mission. And, you know, it was pretty clear that that was not going to be a normal thing. So, you know, it, it was the flight of Major Tim Peake that that I think has has opened that up in the UK. And obviously there are other astronauts from other nations in Europe that have done the same thing for their countries. And young people now are beginning to see real possibilities in science and engineering, not just as careers, but as things that can open doors to whole new realms. And in a way, we're going back to Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry here. Yeah, I know I was first inspired to take up rocketry by stuff I'd seen in fiction. And actually on one episode of Scrap Beat Challenge where they had to build rockets, it really is a powerful thing to see somebody from where you're from doing something utterly amazing and to see people who look like you doing it. It's why diversity matters in, at, at NASA. It's why having space agencies that aren't NASA getting out there and doing stuff and inspiring people is also so important. It's why we need an ESA. It's why we need a JAXA, which is the Japanese Space Exploration Agency. It's why, to a lesser degree, we need Roscosmos. Roscosmos is still more of a... yeah. I I worry about the Russians, basically, is the thing. Um, And it's why I wish that the Chinese Space Agency would be more transparent. We don't know what the Chinese are doing in space. Because they hardly ever tell anyone they're doing it. And I don't, I genuinely don't think it's because they're up to anything particularly nefarious. I mean, there are quite a lot of things that the Europeans and the Americans do in space that we don't talk about because they are nefarious. And I'm sure that the Russians and the Chinese are up to the same sort of thing. But the Chinese don't talk to us about the non-nefarious stuff either. The Chinese are building their own space station, for goodness sake. Now, I'm sure that there will be some military applications to that, but equally, there will be some good science done there. And I I genuinely think it's a shame that the Chinese don't feel able to share that. They could provide so much inspiration to so many people. Uh, uh. But anyway, the point is the good news story here. 23,000 plus Europeans saw the call for astronauts and para-astronauts and kind of went, yeah, do you know what? I'm qualified to do that, and I'm going to give it a go. And I'm so, so pleased. And as an aside, I'm also pleased that it's finally got to someone's attention that just because somebody has a physical disability when in gravity does not mean that they will have a physical disability in space. And it certainly doesn't mean that even if they continue to have that disability, when in space, that doesn't necessarily mean they can't go. It doesn't necessarily mean they don't have an important contribution to make. And in fact, there are some disabilities. And I, you can't see me because this is audio, but disabilities is always in heavy air quotes. I mislike the term disability. Uh, it's just that the term differently able doesn't really work for me either. Um, there are some things that would be regarded as physical limitations on Earth that not only are no problem in microgravity, they might actually prove to be an advantage. I mean, for example, we were talking about the Paralympics earlier. A lot of the wheelchair sports people have quite atrophied legs because they are, you know, using a wheelchair all the time. Uh, They have no, you know, maybe they have no feeling in their legs. Their legs don't function. So, yeah, the muscles have atrophied. And or maybe they're amputees, you know, there's that. Well, you don't need legs on the International Space Station. If anything, the shorter you are, the better. There is actually a a robot on the International Space Station, which is just a torso with arms and a head. They gave it a head because they were freaked out by it when it didn't have one. Um, So that kind of um, thing that, yeah, as I say, you know, it's a bit of an inconvenience, you know, to say the least on Earth. But on the, in, in space, not a problem. And 
probably makes you more manoeuvrable and more agile. All you need on the ISS is upper body strength, and you don't actually need that much of that. Uh, other thing, I can think of lots of other things. Um, cerebral palsy, for instance, probably less of an issue in microgravity than it is on Earth. So, you know, yes, let's not make the mistake of excluding a whole section of the population who could make astonishing contributions to science just because they happen to fit a particular profile. You've got to remember, there was a time when women were not allowed to fly in space. So, you know, and now look at all the astonishing work that female astronauts have done. So the more inclusive we can be, the better we can be together. And if that sounds like the boring preachy part, so be it. But anyway, two quite cool, quite good news stories from space. Links to both in the show notes. Uh, you can also see the full uh, Gene Roddenberry tribute video uh, in the show notes, although it's also available on NASA's channel on YouTube. And indeed, it's embedded in the article that's linked to from the show notes. So you're not going to miss it if you want to watch it. I recommend watching it. It's, it's good. It's, it's quite inspiring stuff. But that is it for this week for Space. Okay, well, welcome now to what I'm going to, I think, make a whole new segment of the show, because everything you've just listened to was recorded on Tuesday. What you're listening to now is recorded on the day of broadcast, do we broadcast? Um, I don't know, can we call it broadcasting? On the day the show drops, let's say that. Uh, so this is recorded on Thursday, the 2nd of September. Why am I telling you this? Well, I'm telling you this because, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I think, it was a couple of days ago now, I record this on a Tuesday so that I've got time to get all the editing done and all of that kind of stuff, uh, which is why everything you've just listened to probably sounds a little bit more professional than this does, because this is recorded last, last minute. But I'm going to start doing this as a matter of course, because it means I can get some more topical news in. Uh, I don't have long, but... There's a couple of things I'd like to mention. First of all, is a really good job that I recorded the picture of the week about graphic novels and didn't wait for the delivery to arrive because the delivery, as I record this at half past nine on a Thursday morning, the delivery still has not arrived. I have no new comics yet this week. I am promised they will be here before 10 o'clock this morning. Um, so, yeah, for once, and this may mean nothing to any of you, but this is a big thing in comics world. Um, for once, it's not Diamond's fault. Diamond are the exclusive distributor of new US comics in the UK, at the moment at least. That may change soon. There is politics happening. And like many Monopoly suppliers, they're not great, actually. They're brilliant at fixing problems, but the only reason they're good at fixing problems is because they're really good at causing them. So they, they've got lots of practice at fixing problems. And this actually was the delivery company who just didn't pick them up. So, yay, DHL. Good one, guys. Uh, so anyway, that's a bit of that's a that's a bit of inside baseball moaning from me. Uh, and I just want to give a big shout out to everyone who's involved in the delivery industry, actually, because apart from this, you're doing a great job. You did an absolutely fantastic job. And I don't think you're, you're appreciated nearly enough. And. Um, I can get really geeky about logistics, so that, that might come into it at some point. Um, I also have a little bit of space news, and this is potentially, potentially quite serious. It's breaking news. I've literally seen this in the last couple of minutes, uh, so I don't have any detail. I'll probably go into a bit more detail next week. But you remember Richard Branson sort of going into space? He didn't actually, but that's only because the FAA moved the moved the goalpost. Well, now under investigation by the FAA because they did a boo-boo. And as I say, potentially quite serious. Link in the show notes to the New Yorker article that I've just found about this. Um, they went off their glide path um, and it doesn't sound serious unless you know about rocketry. You've only got so much fuel. You've only got so much margin for error. And so your flight plan and your flight trajectory is very, very carefully 
calculated. You can't muck about with this stuff. Okay, it's not like flying a regular plane. It just isn't. Now, on the power descent stage of the flight, which is the bit where the rocket motors are ignited on the Spaceship 2 rocket plane, he definitely strayed from his glide path. And potential I mean, they got away with it. So, you know, all's good from that point of view. But potentially that could have meant they didn't have sufficient energy to get back to their runway, which would have meant ditching Spaceship 2 probably in the desert. Now, that might, might be a survivable thing. I am just going to say the only time a Spaceship 2 craft hasn't made it back to the runway, the pilots on board were killed. That wasn't a passenger carrying flight. It was a test flight. Test flights do go wrong. And they did get away with this. But it's a bit of a worry. And they are under investigation by the FAA, who potentially could ground Spaceship 2, which would be pretty serious for Richard Branson. So if we're keeping score in the Battle of the Billionaires in Space, Richard Branson is now flat last. Uh, we'll wait to see how the FAA investigation comes out. They might just say, yeah, no harm, no foul. You were, with, you were within safety parameters. It's cool. They might not. So we'll see about that. But oof, I didn't see that one coming. And it just goes to show space is hard, man. Space is hard. Now, moving swiftly on in this topical last five or ten minutes of the show to the Geeky Community Corkboard, which is pretty empty this week. Please if you have a geeky event at your business or anywhere else, do hit me up and let me know so that I can give you a bit of a publicity boost. So that's info at destinationvenus.co.uk or, you know, hit me up on the social medias or whatever takes your fancy. Just the one item this week, and that's to give the Thought Bubble comic drive another bit of a plug. I am accepting any readable comics that you need to get rid of at Destination Venus. I will pass them on to Thought Bubble, who will pass them on to schools and libraries and charity groups and youth groups and anybody else who might benefit from a bunch of free comics. Usual caveat supply. Please check to make sure I'll be open before you bring anything in. Please only hand stuff to me. Don't leave it lying about. And please, please, seriously, because you'll get me in trouble. Don't leave stuff outside the Everyman Cinema. Please really don't do that. It will get me in a lot of trouble. And if you're bringing a lot of stuff in, please let me know so that I can make arrangements to have somewhere to put it because I don't have a lot of storage space. If you are outside Harrogate and you want to get involved and you have some comics that you want to get rid of, you can also drop them off at any branch of Travelling Man. That's Leeds, Manchester, York, uh, Newcastle upon Tyne, and I think there's a couple of others. Honestly, if you've got a Travelling Man anywhere near you, you probably know where it is. So you can drop, drop stuff off there as well or you can mail it to Thought Bubble. Links in the show notes to the Thought Bubble website which has all the information about this you could possibly need. And that is just about that for this week. You never know you look. I may actually have got other people involved with this by the next time you hear me. I am certainly hoping to have got the conversation with Alice about Lord of the Rings done by then because wow that's taking a lot of time to get sorted. But uh, I also have some other irons in the fire, some other discussions and interviews that I am in the process of sorting out. So hopefully, before too much longer, you won't just be listening to me. And so all that remains is to tell you that Geeking with Destination Venus is a copyright feature of Venus Rising Media, engineered here in Yorkshire by me in a sort of semi-professional, ham-fisted kind of way. But right now, all that remains is to thank each and every single one of you for your kind attention, you magnificent geeks. We will be back next week with more geeky news, views and goodness. Until then, be kind to yourself, be kind to everybody else. Stay safe and above all else, stay geeky until we meet back here to go geeking once again. Take care, folks. We'll see you next week.